Good Wednesday, Trinity Grace Church. Hope your midweek is off to a great start or uh, that your Wednesday has ended well, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, or that you're getting ready for church on Sunday morning. I don't know. Uh, but welcome to episode three of Question and Response. My name is Jacob, and lucky for you guys, I'm not the one actually giving the responses. So for that, we have Michael Novak. Michael, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for being here to answer or ask some questions. Yeah, we got some really great questions this week as, we, as we're continuing the sermon series um, in Mark. Uh, but before we do that, why don't we talk a little bit about what this series is all about and why we're doing this? Yeah, we think it's important at Trinity Grace for people to be able to bring their questions to the table. We don't assume that everybody has all uh, the right answers, and we assume that every Sunday there are lots of different uh, questions that are being um, asked in people's minds. And so we want to provide an opportunity for people to bring their questions to the table, uh, take their questions seriously, and provide a biblical response to the questions that they have. So this isn't just because you couldn't get everything in in 25 minutes. <laughs> it also, though, does allow uh, people to have sort of a continued conversation from yeah. the sermon on Sunday, which is nice. Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is great. Um, okay, let's get into the first one. Sure. So first question says this. Jesus, in essence, made uh, Jairus come to him and plead for his daughter's healing, let her die, and then went to her in order to raise her. The woman with the bleeding problem was healed on the spot. Any thoughts on why one got instant relief on the spot and the other had to have things actually get worse and then wait for healing to occur later? Yeah, well, that's a really good question because at the end of uh, Mark chapter 5, we do see Jesus healing two people. One person gets immediately healing. The other has to wait patiently uh, and even has to endure uh, turmoil and emotional duress while he waits on Jesus to come. Um, and the question becomes, why, uh, why are some made to wait and endure and others receive uh, automatic healing? And I think it's important to keep in mind two things when we consider this question. First, this phenomena of some people receiving immediate healing while others have to wait patiently really highlights the humanity of Jesus. If you think about it, we're following along in Jesus' life here. He's in the flesh. He received a request from Jairus, and he actually had to walk to Jairus' home, which took time. Uh, he was moving through a real crowd of people that were pressing in on him. And in the midst of his journey, he encountered a woman who demonstrated real faith that led to her healing, which stopped him in his tracks. Uh, there's an aspect of Jesus' humanity that has to be considered when thinking about this question. Jesus can only be in one place at one time while he was here on earth. And it was his prerogative to really stop and show compassion to this lady and to honor the faith that he witnessed emanating from her. That's what I think is so interesting about this was that um, Jairus was a wealthy synagogue ruler mm -hmm. and Jesus is on the way to do this grand task for him, but he doesn't, he doesn't push the woman aside because he's busy with something else. He stops True. and gives her his full attention before proceeding with that. It's amazing. It seems like when you follow Jesus in the Gospels, he always has time. He's never in a rush. Yeah. He's on his own schedule. And we see that here. And uh, the second thing that we've also got to keep in mind is that the miracles of Jesus are always very intentional. Uh, I think of Jesus being called to heal Lazarus in John chapter 11. And in verse 5 of that chapter, it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And so this meant that eventually Lazarus died and Jesus did not show up in time. And we get a sense as you read that passage that it was very intentional on Christ's part. Jesus allowed his friends to experience 
the sorrow and the mourning over death so that they might witness an amazing demonstration of his power over sin and death. And it's really what we see at the end of Mark 5 as well. Jesus is hindered from getting to this girl in a timely manner, but it actually turns out to be an even greater opportunity for the people to witness the power of Christ over sin and death. The Lord doesn't always meet our expectations the way we would like, but he's always intentional in giving us exactly what we need is what we see here from Mark 5. Yeah, and as we think about how these two these two miracles are different from one another, they're also the same in a lot of ways because both this poor woman and this rich uh, guy um, were both at like the depths of despair. So the woman had gone to physicians and probably been made worse by that condition and it, I don't think it's in the text, but we can presume that Jairus had done, had exhausted all of his resources to heal his daughter. Mm-hmm. And Jesus comes to them when they are at the depths of their despair. Sure. And that was one of the main points is that it's our desperation that drives us to Christ. Yeah. And it's our desperation that actually elicits his compassion um, and his willingness to come and, uh, and to help, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Is there a difference between um, a person's uh, faith and a person's faithfulness, because so often we talk about our our faith, like for salvation, like our faith is in Jesus and the work and sacrifice of Jesus. Mm-hmm. How is that different from faithfulness? Sure. Yeah, I definitely think there is a difference. And when I think of this woman's faith that we see in Mark 5, it says that Jesus looked at her and said that your faith made you well. And I take that to mean that faith was the instrument by which she took hold of Jesus. Mm. Um, and so that is faith, us placing our faith in Jesus to receive salvation or restoration. I think faithfulness more in terms of diligence. Yeah. Um, we're called to be faithful as we follow Jesus through trial, through tribulation, through sorrow, and through joy. Um, and that's something that we can actually muster up with the help of the Spirit at work in our hearts. So is it the object of our faith, Christ, or the faith itself? That's the more important thing. Uh, I, I definitely think that the object of our yeah. faith is the more important thing. And we've talked about that some. It's the object of our faith that remains unchanging if we place it in Jesus. Depending on the day, my faith can be oh, very strong yeah, or very weak. But the great thing you see from this passage is that Jesus is sensitive to faith, mm-hmm. no matter if it's strong or weak. If you approach him in faith, he's sensitive and will have compassion on you. Yeah. It's amazing. Awesome. So uh, you good to go to number two? Sure, let's do it. Awesome. Okay, so um, number two has to do with uh, one of the differences between the two stories. So when Jesus heals the woman, he does not say uh, uh, to not tell anyone, but when he heals the girl, he tells them not to tell everybody. So what's going on there? This is such an interesting question. There are instances in other times and places in the gospel where you see Jesus after healing someone strictly commanding them not to tell others what had been done. But in other instances, like the instance that we saw last week when Jesus healed the man with a legion of demons, he actually tells him to go and share with all of his friends and family in the surrounding cities how much Jesus had done for him. And that man was a Gentile. He was a Gentile, and I think that's the key. This woman was healed, and she's not given any restriction Uh, And you've got to think in that day and age, women's testimony was not valued. Mm. Um, And so that's uh, something that's at play in this passage. Um, And last week we saw Jesus basically set this Gentile free to go and share far and wide in Gentile territory what Christ has done. 
But it's interesting that normally when Jesus encourages people um, not to advertise, um, he is talking to folks that are within the bounds of uh, ancient Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, where the religious leaders would have been trafficking and hearing about what Christ had done. And so you see Jesus actually cleanse a leper in Matthew 8, and he commands him to say nothing. When Jesus heals two blind men in Matthew 9, he sternly warns them to keep their healing a secret. In Matthew 12, he heals many people, and he commands all of them not to make him known. And in theological circles, this is known as the messianic secret. Okay. The messianic secret. Jesus wanted many of his miracles in Jewish territory to remain secretive, because people were prone to misunderstand his messianic identity. You even see it from his disciples. Yeah. Uh, they generally thought in terms of political and military themes, which was not Jesus' mission. Uh, and so these miracles really attested to the authenticity of Christ's message in the kingdom's arrival, but he didn't want to be seen merely as a miracle worker. Um, these miracles were meant to punctuate his message meant to give his preaching message a certain punch and authority. They were intended, never intended to be his main message. Um, A more provocative way to think about it is that Jesus didn't want to get himself killed Mm. before his work was done. Uh, If he wasn't careful, the power and miracles that he displayed would attract the attention of the religious leaders far more quickly than he would have liked and they would have been more likely to seek a way to kill kill him much sooner than than he intended to be, um, than he intended. <laughs> Interesting. So. I like that point about um, that his miracles were not the point. He was the point. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, didn't want to just be known as a miracle worker. And I think so often, um, I mean, we're here in Texas in the Bible Belt, and so often we we I, we idolize churchness and church things and either the church or a particular pastor or a Christian writer. Um, but we don't, so often we don't worship the, the object that that's all pointing to, which is, which is Christ himself. So yeah. uh, maybe just a modern day application. Of sure. That, and the other interesting thing is he actually let folks go and did not necessarily heal everybody that needed to be healed. Mm. Um, but he would proclaim the gospel uh, to large, large crowds. Um, and so just another um uh, another indication that his miracles were meant to be, in some ways, um, I guess you could say, for lack of a better phrase, icing on the cake mm, yeah. um, is a way to think about it. Okay. I, I'm also reminded of Isaiah where it says, eyes but no seeing, ears but no hearing, minds but no understanding. Mm-hmm. Maybe I got that wrong, but um, yeah. That's... Yeah. Okay. Um, question three. This one is a doozy, so I'm, I'm excited to yes. get to this one. So um, question three says... I'm wondering why, if you do, um, why you believe the Bible is all God-breathed, infallible, inerrant. I know 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed, but did Paul have all of the New Testament in mind when he was writing it, or just the law and the prophets? How can we tell if he's referring to what we call today our Bible? Wow. Um, This is deep stuff. I must be a glutton for punishment. (laughs) Uh, That's a great question. And this question is interesting. I got this question through email from one of my neighbors here uh, in our neighborhood. And uh, uh, another neighbor that goes to Trinity Grace told him that I answer questions. (laughs) And he sent me an email and said, I hear you answer questions. Here's my question. Um, And... I'm not trying to make excuses for this response when I say that this 
question could be answered over the course of multiple weeks. Yeah. Um, in fact, if you were to go to a seminary, this would be uh, a topic that you spend multiple weeks on uh, in class. And so um, just want to lay that out there. We have limited time. But I think it's helpful to look at the verses in question that Paul writes to encourage Timothy. This is what he says starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. Timothy, uh, or Paul says this to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so those are the verses uh, that this question uh, addresses. And it's interesting that the Greek word that Paul uses here is theonoustos, which is literally breath of God. And so as Paul describes the scriptures, he's saying it's the breath of God. He's stressing the divine origin uh, and therefore the authorities of the, of the authority of the scriptures. Uh, and at the time Paul is writing, likely sometime around 60 AD, we can be fairly confident that Paul is at least referring to the Old Testament scriptures when he talks about all scripture is breathed out by God. After all, it would be hard to think of a New Testament letter that does not explicitly reference the Old Testament mm -hmm. or at least implicitly refer to the Old Testament in some way. Uh, and so we can be fairly certain that obviously this Jewish man, his Bible, the Hebrew Bible, our modern day Old Testament is what he has in mind. Paul was least. also a, a Pharisee, wasn't he? Sure. And so he, he would have known himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He would have known his, uh, his yeah. Hebrew Bible. Yeah, we think we're cool because we know John 3.16. He, he memorized <laughs> numbers. Right? That's right. <laughs> Leviticus, yeah. the graveyard of reading plans. Um, however, even though he's referring to the Old Testament, it's also likely that he's got some portions of the New Testament in mind as well when he talks about the Scripture being breathed out by God. Because if you remember back in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 5, verse 18, he references the Gospel of Luke directly uh, when he says that the laborer deserves his wages. And so it seems that Paul is at least aware and likely referring to written records of the gospel accounts in his encouragement that he's writing to Timothy. Um, on top of that, you get a sense that a lot of the New Testament writers had a sense that what they were writing was actual scripture, was actual uh, word of God. Uh, there's a few references I'd just love to throw out there for your consideration. The first is 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, it says this, uh, And we also thank God constantly for this, that you, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so Paul here is even referencing his words as the very word of God as he addresses the Thessalonians. Uh, in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. John says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So you get a sense that John has a very real idea that he is portraying things that have happened, things that he's touched, that he's seen, that he's heard. Uh, and he is simply conveying them uh, to the readers of his letter. 
Um, and then also you get uh, in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, this is what John says about his letter. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And so that makes it sound like John knew that he was writing more than human words. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has the authority uh, of God behind what he is writing. And then lastly, I'll just say this. Not only does Paul reference Luke in his first letter to Timothy, we also uh, see Peter reference Paul. In 2 Peter 3.15, this is what Peter says. Um, he says, And count the patience of of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And so it's interesting that Peter basically assumes that there's a number of letters from Paul that are circulating, mm. that they're well enough known to have been at least received by these recipients in Asia Minor, um, and he also uses the same word to refer to Paul's letters um, as uh, other instances in the New Testament are the same word is used to refer to the Old Testament um, as, as Paul's letters here um, in, in 2 Peter 3.15. Um, I hope that makes sense. Um, it just leads us to believe uh, that not only was the Old Testament in mind, uh, but very early on, the New Testament writers had a very good idea that they were writing the very words of God that were meant to equip and to edify God's people. Um, and then on top of that, by you know mid-2nd century, 3rd century, most of the church fathers had recognized uh, all 27 books that we currently have in our New Testament. And it's important to, uh, to, to note this that the church's job was not to make the canon mm -hmm. or it wasn't to make the 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, it was to recognize them. Um, and so when Jesus in the Gospel of John says the sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd, um, in a very real sense, that's what the church's job was early on in establishing the canon, recognizing the voice of their shepherd. Um, and so... Those are just some categories uh, to think through as you consider this question. I definitely think Paul had the Old Testament in mind, uh, but he also had more than the Old Testament in mind as well, according to some of the other scriptures that we looked at tonight. So what about, and I know we're getting close on time here, but this is the obvious follow-up. What about the Apocrypha and what about the Gnostic Gospels? Sure. Um, that is uh, another loaded question. Um, simple way to think about uh, the Gnostic Gospels uh, is that um, some of those writings were not actually written by eyewitnesses mm. uh, that had lived in, uh, in Christ's time. Um, and so they were so far removed in terms of when they were written that the early church simply threw them out and did not consider them um, to be uh, divine-inspired scripture. Um, the other thing that you see when you actually read the Gnostic Gospels is sometimes they uh, contradict um, very clear teachings uh, that we find in other books of the New Testament. And so they don't fit well. And so those are some of the things that you see in the Gnostic Gospels uh, that lead the early church to believe um, that they were a little too far-fetched to have been genuine eyewitness accounts that should belong in our New Testament scriptures. Mm.
Interesting. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode three of Trinity Grace Question and Response. Um, as always, guys, thanks for listening. Um, you can always send your questions in. You can text them to 210-920-0783, or you can email michael at trinitygracesa.org. And we look forward to getting those questions and hopefully responding to them um, on a future episode of the show. We'd really appreciate it if you guys would go on to uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, um, and subscribe. That way you get this into your feed and listen to it on your morning commute or while you're mowing the lawn or whenever you listen to podcasts. Until, until next time, guys, take care.